Welcome to The Bulb, a podcast shedding light on gendered violence. In each edition, we'll explore aspects of this violence. What is thought about it, what we know about it, or what is yet to be revealed. The Bulb is a podcast series brought to you by the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. Thank you for joining us as we share knowledge to improve the lives of women and their children. Today I'm joined by Dr Brody Evans, who is the Men's Program Coordinator at Brisbane Domestic Violence Service. And we're very excited to have Brody joining us on The Bulb today because Brody's going to share some with listeners some of their perspectives on this topic of working with men. Brody, welcome to The Bulb. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And I think one of the things that might be interesting for listeners to hear from you about is what a typical day looks like, if indeed there's such a thing as a typical day in the life of Dr. Brody Evans at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I mean, in my role, I have several different hats that I wear. So I do facilitate uh, one of our perpetrator intervention group programs. So, um, you know, that's currently on a Monday that I do the facilitation. So a typical day on a Monday uh, would be, you know, uh, preparing for the week, preparing for that group and then going to facilitate. Um, on the days that I don't facilitate, I oversee our team of six group facilitators and coordinate the delivery of our program. It's probably the best way to phrase it. So that includes um, preparing those facilitators. So I'll be going through our attendance sheets for the week, you know, really who's on the program what do the facilitators need to know about these men? And that includes liaising with the woman's advocate attached to the program. And she contacts the women, the current and ex-partners linked to those men on the program. So it's getting updates on risk, any of those kind of uh, issues that need to be raised with facilitators. So they know what's what's going to happen tonight. What's, what's, what's he going to come to group with? And kind of having those conversations with the facilitators. And alongside that, I'm also... Uh, going through new referrals into the program. So looking through all the referral packs that we get from our referring partners, that includes probation and parole, child safety, uh, Queensland Drug and Alcohol Court, the Brisbane Magistrates Court Link Program and the Ronald Persons Unit with the, with the Queensland Police. So I'm, I'm getting referrals from, from those referral pathways and assessing them for their suitability on program and then putting them on our wait list. When we've got vacancies on the program, I'm looking through our wait lists and getting updates on risk and, and having conversations with our women's advocate of who, who do they think is most in need of support from the women's advocate and looking at the risk and who needs to be prioritised based on that. So we're having those kind of conversations. And then in terms of when the after group, which so every day after group, I have to send out the weekly feedback from that group, from the facilitators and the participants. And that includes also reviewing that feedback around any dynamic changes to risk. So has he disclosed something in group that I need to follow up on? Um, do I need to be having conversations with the woman's advocate around he left elevated, you know, uh, we might need to do a welfare check, those kind of conversations. Um, or if he didn't turn up and he's non-compliant, what does that mean? for his place on the program and having those conversations. It doesn't always mean he's excluded from group, but it's having those conversations with the women's advocate and with his supervising officer. Um, so 
that's kind of the, the typical day. A lot of it's that that administrative coordination around uh, who's on program and that movement for him, whether his referrals or his exit. And then it's a lot of report writing. So I do you know, progress reports and exit reports if a, if a guy's um, completing or exiting early um, and at that halfway point. So yeah, it's it's a it's a real what's great about our program is it is that coordinated response. So we've got you know ref, case management that's happening outside of our service, and then we get to work in partnership. So a lot of it is just constant communication flow between our referring partners through the women's advocate and having that coordinated response around what's this risk like looking like, how are we responding as a, as a service system, um, how are we meeting the needs of the community of the aggrieves impacted by the violence and um, of, of him on how are we supporting him to make change. So it's it's kind of that coordinating that coordinated response. So that's kind of a typical day. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and I guess you use the word dynamic, which is the word that we you know, always think about when we think about a, a safety. Um, and I think this area of working with men is indeed a very dynamic space. And that's one of the reasons why we're exploring this topic in this season of The Bulb. From a research and policy development perspective, yes, we've seen lots of interest there. Why do you think there is such an interest at the moment in, in the whole perpetrator intervention world? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I don't mean, I think there's two things there with that question. I think firstly is that there has been obvious media attention and rise of media attention with men murdering women in Queensland and the conversations that have happened through those discussions. Um, I think, you know, when we're having those discussions around system response and we're, we're, we're having those, um, I guess, call to action in terms of needing increased funding resources, uh, changes to legislation, new legislation, all those conversations are, they are a call to, to government action. There, there's some things that we can do as a service, but there's a lot of um, things that we need uh, as, a, as a community, to have a community response to domestic violence, we need uh, government action. And I think because of all those conversations and because we've got a supportive government in place in Queensland in the Labor Party of wanting to invest in this area and respond to those needs of the community. I think that's, it's just, it's a, a lot of things happening at once. And I think, you know, because of that, those conversations that we're having and the responses from government, I think that's where a lot of that attention is coming from. And I think secondary to that is just the decades long, um, multiple decades long activism from feminists, from DV services, from sexual violence services, from refugees, from women's health and wellbeing services. And I think there's a real push in that activism, that collective activism around shifting responsibility on addressing violence away from the, the person experiencing violence and onto the, per the person using violence. And I think that's not something new, that's grassroots activism from people who are experiencing violence and people who are in the service sector you know, supporting um, primarily women and children um, experiencing the violence and, and this call that it's just, it's just not fair. It's not fair that women are facing this burden of having to be responsible for their own safety as victims of violence and, you know, having to move house and kids having to be pulled out of schools, of having to go to, um, into refuge instead of him having to, <laughs> having to leave. It's unfair. And that's not to say that 
the solution isn't that, you know, it's not always a solution for, for him to leave and her stay in the house um, when he knows her address still. So I'm not saying it's the, the solution, but I think when you've got so many voices, strong voices and consistent messaging that this is unfair and we need to do something different and we need to hold the people using violence accountable. And I think that activism is it's finally being heard. I, I think that's what it is. I think it's we're finally hearing that message loud and clear that men need to be held accountable and responsible for the ones actually using violence. And I'm hearing in there too, not just the individual accountability from the man, but I guess the systemic accountabilities that, that need to be wrapped around that as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, it's the system response. Need a sh- we need to shift our attitude on how we address domestic violence. And I think we're starting to see that now. That investment needs to not just be on victim safety, but perpetrator accountability and actually ending the violence by working with the person using that violence and also understanding how that relates to victim safety, that they're not, that, that you can't have victim safety unless you have the eyes on the men, unless you're actually working with the men to end his violence. Um, it, it's understanding that we, we need to be working with men um, if, we're, if we're going to try and end domestic violence and we're trying to keep women safe. And also the women want us to. You know, we, we hear women wanting us to work with men to stop his violence. Um, so I think it's all those little things. So things, I should say. Yeah, so that kind of segues into um, you're talking about your uh, the way you're working in a really integrated way, which is obviously, uh, you know, the optimum way of working. What else do you think is working well in this area at the moment? Yeah, I mean, definitely the, the more we talk to each other is, is definitely the struggle we are uh, as a service. I think the, you know, I mean, I can only speak really for my corner of the sector and, and you know, obviously I, I work in a mainstream organisation in southeast Queensland, so I, you know, have a particular experience in Lens. Um, I work at, at Brisbane Domestic Violence with a lead agency for the high-risk team in Brisbane and I, I sit right next to the, the high-risk team coordinators and, you know, just being, I, I see the strength and how far we've come in regards to our integrated service system and how we're talking to each other. And I see that daily. And um, that's definitely when we are working at our best, when we when we are working together and we have those shared goals. Um, I think starting to see the, the take up and interest in co-responding models and embedded workers, which Brisbane Domestic Violence Service has been doing for, for, for a while now, you know, we, we've got uh, embedded workers in the Queensland Vulnerable Persons, uh, Queensland Police Vulnerable Persons Unit, as well as other uh, family support services. Um, and so, you know, we've been we've been doing this um, for a while, and we, you know, we have co-response models with the police. And I think that has really I've started to see that in the media being talked about more, hearing it from you know the, the findings from research, and. I think hopefully we're starting to see more of that and more interest in that. Um, Having police co-located at domestic violence services and and, and talking with women there instead of at police stations and just all those innovative uh, ways. I think what we're doing well at the moment is I think is is not just relying on business as usual. I think we're we're trying to come up with innovation and creative ways um, to to improve as a service uh, sector. Um, So I think that's... We're working well in, in, in that respect. And I think also in terms of the perpetrator intervention work, it's not, um, I think it's starting to be understood better that it's not um, just um, 
the idea that it's just behaviour change or a goal, just work or support for men, but it is part of that integrated service response for victim safety. And I think we're starting to get a bit of a greater understanding of the perpetrator intervention work as well, um, seeing that it's it's part of that that overall response of domestic violence. Um, I, I think we're starting to get a bit better there. Um, yeah. So you've talked about changes and, and these changes in Queensland have been in the relatively recent past. And I guess quite often with change will come challenges. And you've talked about some great you know, models that are working, but what do you see might be some of the key challenges of working with, with men who are perpetrating violence? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few things. I mean, I think on a, on a practitioner level, on, on someone who's uh, overseeing practitioners, there's definitely challenges around, and this is broadly speaking as a sector, around uh, attracting staff, uh, recruitment staff, maintaining, um, retaining staff. It's perpetrated intervention work. Is, it's highly skilled work, um, you know, a senior facilitator needs to have postgraduate qualifications and you know, 160 hours facilitating group, uh, two years domestic violence experience. It's it's very um, highly skilled work, and we often don't have the funding to hire facilitators full time. Um, you know, it's it's a, a real challenge to be able to offer consistent and stable um, financially. Uh, sufficient uh, work. So most of the facilitators in the sector um, are working part-time. So that's that comes with its own challenges and also in terms of the work that you can do if you're only working full-time and you can't, you know, some it impacts on the case management. You can provide this the preparation you can do before group, the debriefs you can have, the reflective, the time for a reflective practice. So, you know, I mean, I can talk about how underfunded we are as a, as a sector for a lot of time, um, but I think it, it does impact on the work if you don't feel valued as, as workers. And I, I think um, it's a really, perpetrator work is a, is a, a pretty tricky space uh, to work in and I think you can feel isolated as a worker. So I think there's, there's challenges in terms of um, the practitioner challenges and then there's uh, challenges more broadly speaking, with, with working with men. And I think we're seeing a lot of gaps in, that we can't dress, address all the time or, you know, different uh, struggles that we do have. For example, um, the prevalence of family violence, when a lot of our programs are set up to only look at intimate partner violence, and that's a real gap. And it's it's... It definitely it needs a, a tailored response um, where definitely I, I, we are seeing a greater interest in addressing adolescent to parent violence and prison domestic violence as a, a renewed program that works with young boys using violence towards their mum. And that's great, but it doesn't address all adolescent to parent violence. And um, obviously it's, it's in Brisbane. We need more of it. A lot of the time it's it, the challenge is that we need consistent funding and we need more um, more of what we're doing. Um, not meeting the, the demand that is there is, is a, a real challenge. Um, so I think there's there's some of those things. There's, you know, how intersectional we're, we're being um, uh, in terms of need, uh, in terms of diversity. There's definitely challenges of, of how programs are providing safe programs 
for complex uh, needs that we might have. Um, you know, there's definitely men that are coming through with acquired brain injury and other challenges and mental health challenges, drug and alcohol use, a, a lot of real um, challenges to him meaningfully and being able to engage in a reflective process um, for 25 weeks. That can be a real challenge. Um, housing, if men don't have housing, um, and they can't, you know, have those basic needs met, are they going to be in place to address their violence? So there's a lot of challenges there around those intersecting, um, intersectional needs, um, you know, and, and then just also in terms of the type of violence that we're seeing, um, you know, there's definitely programs that are, are well-suited to look at coercive control and uh, look at intimate partner violence, but when we're looking at, First Nations men and the impact of ongoing colonisation and looking at the, the role of family violence and whether mainstream services are able to provide an adequate response to that and a culturally safe program. I think they're the conversations that we're continually having um, and which, which is great that the conversations are being had, um, but there's a real challenge when mainstream services are being tasked to, to do this work instead of directing funds to Aboriginal-led services, um, to First Nations-led uh, organisations that, that can provide tailored work. Um, and I think, so they're the kind of, I, I think, a lot of the challenges that we're trying to do a lot with not enough. <laughs> so I hear the the passion in your voice for this work and I just wonder what is it that that sustains you? Um, you've described very eloquently the types of challenges that you're seeing for the men who are coming into the group. So what is it that keeps you going, Brody, in this space? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that domestic violence is a community problem and it requires a community solution. And I, I firmly believe that perpetrators of violence um, or men using violence should be held accountable within community rather than within prisons. Um, so I, I do come at it from that perspective where I see the value in the work that we're doing and it's it's the, seeing that value is fundamental to, to why I do the work. Um, so I think, you know, when you, when you have those challenging days where, you know, a man might be, um, you know, image managing a lot in group and he or he doesn't want to engage and you're, or you're hearing from the woman's advocate how he's, you know, her fear is still there, her feelings of safety, you know, are, are still really um, compromised because of his violence. And when you're having those, those moments, I guess for me it's, yeah, it's holding on to the why I do the work and, and that if, you know, if domestic violence is a, a community problem that requires a community solution, then I'm, at the end of the day, I am proud of being part of that solution and I think we can all play a role in community Um it doesn't have to be facilitating a, a group. It can be the conversations that you're having at the dinner table. Um, it's the, the the education that's happening in schools. It's you know it's it's how you call on your mates if they're using misogynistic words. It's we all have a, a role to play. Um, this is one role, and I, I feel very uh, honoured to, to to have that role in my nine to five. Um, it's it, you know I've I've come from the education, the tertiary education space, working at uh, universities, and I still research at universities, and I I value education so much. It, it, it sustains me, and while this isn't necessarily education work um, in, the, in the same sense, um, it's, 
it's very much aligned with um, the skills that I have um, and um, what I want to, where I want to uh, make change, what, how I want to affect uh, change and how I can be of service. And so I often think of just how can I be of service and this is one way. So I, they're the, I guess, the things that I tell myself at the end of the day, at the, at the end of a, a challenging day of, of what sustains me and and hearing from the woman's advocate, you know, who I thankfully get to sit next to and having those case discussions and and knowing the, the effect that we're having because she's finally getting support because for the first time she's engaged with the service, for the first time she might have assistance to to um, put out a DVO um, as a protective measure. She's finally getting, um, her, it might be the case that the, the kids are now getting support through our children and young people's team um, and hearing those stories. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely work for an awesome organisation with a lot of fierce women doing awesome work and I think that sustains me hearing that work and knowing that I'm playing my part um, that I can. Thanks, Brody. And I'm just going to pick up, if you don't mind, on the, you've made reference to education. And I think, you know, like you, I've had the good fortune of having the privilege of having an education. How often do you see that education is a factor in the lives or lack thereof in the lives of the, of the men that you're encountering through your work? Well, I mean, we definitely get a, a cross-section of, of men in our programs, um, but because of our referral pathways, because we are um, seeing men through particularly uh, probation and parole, um, and we know that in terms of the criminal justice system um, or the criminal processing system, as I prefer to call it, um, the men who funnel through that system uh, get less white, get, you know, there, there's... You know, in terms of who's getting through that system, um, it's you know definitely the um, getting less wealthier, and you know, and 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 as you go along, um, so we we do see a lot of intersecting uh, oppression when it comes to who is turning up to our group. Um, we're we're not seeing the CEOs, we're not seeing the NRL players. That you know, like they're not they're not coming through to our our program. That I can't speak to the programs that accept self-referrals, and that's when you might see, a, you know, a, a different cross-section of, of men who might come through. Um, so it's it's not necessarily to say that we don't get, uh, you know, we do get white collar, um, if, if that's the terminology to use. Um, we do get them uh, into our group. I, I think education's a, a tricky one because it 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 sometimes implies that um, men just don't know. Um, what it what it means to to be not violent, or why you should be non violent, or how to be non violent, and a lot of the men that we see know exactly what they're doing, know exactly how to control a woman, um, know exactly what works for them, um, and get a lot of power doing it, and and and, and want to keep doing it. <laughs> so the idea that it's um it's just knowledge that they're lacking um, isn't isn't the core of the problem. Um, so there might be some intersections around who has a tertiary education, who finished high school, um, who's employed. There's definitely a clear class, you know, uh, dif- distinction around who comes into our groups because of our referring pathways. Um, you know, to say for we have child safety referrals, and you know, there's obviously going to be an Im- uh, an impact on um, 
how many First Nations men come into contact with child safety versus um, non-First Nations. So there's there's all these kind of issues that we see play out in who turns up to our group um, around class and race and ethnicity and gender um, and sexuality, and, and we, we see that um, who turns up to our group. But it's not to say that... Um, that they just lack education and, and that's why. So, yeah, it, it is interesting to see how it impacts on who comes to our group, um, but it doesn't mean that that's why they're there. Yeah. If that no, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it does, it does entirely. And I guess I was thinking about, you know, early life experiences and not necessarily education about domestic and family violence as such, but, but again, just general life opportunities because, you know, you spoke mm. to First Nations peoples, um, oppression and colonisation, and, uh, and it did make me think about you know, the early years of, uh, and you're absolutely right, receiving an education does not somehow vaccinate you against being a perpetrator by mm. any means. You may just become a very well-educated perpetrator, but mm. I guess I was thinking about some of the um, adverse um, childhood experiences that, that many people experience. So yeah. thank you for in, indulging me with that. that no, and, question. and we have questions on their, on their referral uh, pack around their experiences in childhood, uh, around whether they saw violence um, within the home, whether they were um, experienced other adverse uh, impact, uh, trauma around sexual violence and things like that. And, you know, you're reading through this and sometimes you're like, oh, shit, he didn't stand a chance, you know, and you're, you're, you know, and you're not surprised that, you know, we, you know, and it's not to say that those who experience childhood trauma will go on to commit violence. And if that was the case, we would have far more women perpetrating violence, right? So, um, but it is sometimes you, 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 you often think, gosh, I, I wish we got there earlier. I wish someone spoke to this eight-year-old around the violence that he was experiencing as a child. I wish someone spoke to this teenager around his violence that he's using in the home or at the schoolyard. Uh, you know, so I think absolutely right. I, and I think it definitely highlights how important early intervention is um, and, and how it can impact it, the life opportunities um, that one has when they're experiencing violence in the home. Thanks, Brody. And finally, just to kind of come full circle on the bulb, since the bulb is all about shining light, can you share your thoughts on what you see ahead in terms of the future of, of this work with men? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, um, I see that there is current interest around looking at adolescent parent violence. I think that's, um, and that early intervention work that we were talking about, I think, um, you know, I hope there's a, a lot of investment looking at childhood trauma and, and getting in early. I think um, we're starting to hopefully see wraparound services more around perpetrator intervention work. And so I'm, you know, I would looking at other states who have, for example, uh, residential programs for men where they're they're coming in for, for six months, they're getting that housing, they're getting drug and alcohol support, they're getting counseling services, um, and domestic violence is part of that holistic response. And um I think more research needs to be done on on looking at how we can provide more effective Program. So I think, I think going ahead, I think it would be, I, I don't think it's too optimistic to think that we're going to have more Australian data, more Australian evidence base that we can be drawing on to be making decisions um, in Australia in our, in our responses. And I think um, I'm, I'm hoping that we're, we will start seeing more uh, funding being directed 
for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men to have more culturally safe programs. And I think similar with uh, queer men, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll start seeing those conversations happening more and more around how we can best integrate um, queer uh, tactics of abuse that happen in queer relationships into our into our services or having funded for, for queer men to go to uh, a specialist program. And I think on top of that, I, having, I've mentioned early intervention, but also maintenance programs um, that can go from when a man exit programs and what looking at that support after, um, the idea that after 16 weeks we've reversed 30 years of beliefs um, that have been enshrined. Um, sometimes you can, the only change you might see is him now going, I think I need to do something differently. Sometimes you're just getting a guy from pre-contemplative to contemplative and and that's what you are able to achieve with him, which is huge um, in his life trajectory. But what happens after um, and what services are there after that? So I think, you know, we're seeing funding for Men's Line and, and DV Connect Men's Line and, and Note of Violence. And I think we're, we're seeing more investment. So what I'm hopeful for is that continues over the next year and, 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 and beyond. Um, and we start having those conversations of, of how best to use uh, these funds and how best to, to meet the needs of the community. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, Brody, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. And I'm thinking that, you know, um, should resources become available, you would be a really great person to speak with about how they should be allocated. <laughs> so, Brody, I'm going to wrap it up here from my end. Thank you so much. I always enjoy catching up with you and as ever, you've been very generous in your time and sharing your wisdom. So thank you so much, Brody. No worries. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Talk to you soon. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb and Lightning. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au. For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1-800-737-732 through 1-800-RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.